Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We've been reading the book of Acts together, and we're still uh, really close to the beginning of the story. Uh, So far, we've seen Jesus tell the first Christians that they are his witnesses in this world and that they would receive everything that they needed to carry out that vocation when they received the Holy Spirit. And then last week, we read about the Holy Spirit coming to them and about the reaction of the crowds in Jerusalem to seeing and hearing and experiencing the coming of the Spirit on those first Christians. And some who were there wondered what it meant. Others who were there thought the first Christians had been drinking too much. And so Peter jumped in on those reactions, and he preached his very first sermon. And we're going to pick up with the reaction of the people after Peter finished his sermon. So I'm going to read from Acts 2, uh, verses 37 through 47. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read the end of Acts 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang together and asked that you would unveil all of your beauty to us. And you know, of course, there are some of us here who sang that and who feel that deeply, who feel close to you and we're ready to hear from you. We want to see your beauty again. And you know there's others of us here who sang that and and we don't really know what it means or we don't mean it. You know, there are those of us here this morning who have faith and those of us who don't, those who feel far from you or that you're distant from us. So, Father, we ask what would be impossible without your spirit, and that is that you would use this word that we have read and heard together to unveil your beauty to all of us, every one of us in here this morning, and change us by that grace. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on the Saturday uh, before I started seminary, 
uh, Allison, who I had been dating for several years at that point, um, with whom I had picked out an engagement ring, uh, she broke up with me. <laughs> now, before I tell you any more of this story, I want you to know that Allison, who is my wife of almost 23 years, who's sitting right over there, she told me it was okay for me to tell you this story. Her exact words were, you have permission to throw me under the bus again. <laughs> potato, potato. I mean, you broke up with me two days before I started seminary. So, the only way... I love you, babe. <laughs> the only way that I can explain how I felt in that moment is that I felt frozen. I mean, it was completely unexpected. I hadn't seen it coming, so I felt like I went from just fine to at the end of my rope in just a couple of hours. And the truth is, I didn't have any idea what to do. I had no idea just even how to go home or live or get on with things or get her back if there was some way I could do that. I had no idea what to do. So I met with my pastor, Dave Williams, who some of you may remember, and I told him what had happened. I told him what Allison had said and what I had said in, in detail. And when I finished telling him all that stuff, he seemed completely unfazed. He seemed completely unconcerned. And he said to me, Aaron, I've seen this like a hundred times. If you love her, you'll meet with her, and this is what you'll tell her. And then he told me what to say to her, which honestly was something I had never, ever considered in my life before. I thanked him, you know, for his kindness and his thoughtfulness, but inside, I thought that he was nuts. So I did not follow his advice. I did not do what he said to do. It was a couple of days later, and one of Allison's friends who knew this situation, she came to my apartment and she told me, uh, without any collaboration, pretty much exactly what my pastor had told me. And again, I felt really grateful for her compassion and her kindness to me, but secretly I thought she was nuts too. And I stubbornly refused her advice. And it wasn't until my pastor met with me again and told me the same thing for the third time that I finally did it. And I did it mostly because I, have, I had absolutely no idea what else to do. So I did it. And obviously they were completely right. Now I know I've left out a lot of the juicy details. Um, and the juicy details are not the point here. The point here is that I'm guessing that every one of us in here this morning have maybe been in a similar spot. Maybe not with heartbreak, but with something in life. To borrow a phrase from the story that we just read together, there have been moments when we have felt cut to the heart and frozen, and we have absolutely no idea what to do. Well, that precarious place is where scores and scores of people found themselves after they listened to Peter preach his first sermon on that day of Pentecost. They were cut to the heart. They had reached the end of their rope completely unexpectedly. And they had no idea what to do. And so they just say it to Peter and to the rest of the apostles. What should we do? We need your help. We don't know where to go from here. And happily, they weren't like this 
recalcitrant bonehead, and they listened to Peter, and they did, many of them, what he told them to do. So we'll come back to that in a little bit, but first, if you were here last week, you know that something incredibly remarkable had happened that morning before all of this stuff began to take place. I mean, the thing that had happened is the reason that Peter's preaching and the people are wondering, what are we supposed to do? And that thing that happened is that the Spirit had come to the first Christians, and it was a sight and a sound and... Uh, one of the results was that the pilgrims who were there for Pentecost heard some of these Christians speak to them in their native tongues, languages they should have never otherwise known. And this was amazing and alarming and scary and strange to everyone. Like I said, some people wondered what it, what it must have meant. Others brushed it off by saying they had been drinking too much. And Peter dives headlong into this moment. And he tries his best to explain what it all means. Now, we don't have time to look at everything that he said. You should read it this afternoon. It's in verses 14 through 34 of chapter 2. But it is simple to summarize. And I would say in order to get the best sense of it, we actually need to go back a little bit. We need to go back almost two months before that day in the temple to the day when Jesus was heading into Jerusalem for his final week before his crucifixion. We learn about that in uh, the first volume of this work, Luke's Gospel. It's in chapter 19. So Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, and just before he is about to enter for the final week of his life, he stops. And Luke tells us that he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. And in his tears, he says, Would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but you did not know the time of your visitation. It is this powerful, painful moment. Jesus knows the horror that's going to play out in the next week in that city, and he knows that that horror is going to play out because that city collectively will be unable to or they will refuse to recognize him for who he really is. They will not recognize the day of their visitation. And so Peter's sermon, it's really, really simple. He says, dear Dear people of Jerusalem, I want to tell you who was here. I want to tell you what this visitation was about. Jesus of Nazareth was here. This man who was attested to you by God through mighty signs and works and wonders. That's who was here. And then he delivers the gut punch, which they knew must have been coming. And you're the ones who gave him up. You're the ones who handed him over to be crucified at the hands of lawless men. You did that. And then after the gut punch, Peter gives them the mystery. But I want you to know he's not dead. And I know how that sounds. I know how crazy it sounds. But we're his witnesses and we have seen him alive. And this thing that you saw happen here this morning, this sound, this sight, these languages, we want you to know it's him. He's doing this. 
He's not gone. He is with us by the power of the Spirit. And he is keeping all of God's promises. And you know, Luke says they heard this and they were cut to the heart, paralyzed, frozen. They have no idea what to do. And I hope it should be clear, at least more clear, why. Because they saw their place in that story. They were the ones who had refused to see Jesus for who he was. They were the ones who had betrayed him into the hands of lawless men and delivered him up to his death. They are, like Peter puts it, (laughs) this crooked generation. And I'm sure that this is what they think. What kind of hope is there for people like us? If what you're saying is true, Peter, then what hope do we have in this world? What should we do? And it's old Peter who answers them, and I can't imagine anyone more eminently qualified to answer that question in that moment. Old Peter the one who knows a thing or two about second chances. (laughs) The one who knows a thing or two about betraying someone over into the hands of lawless men. The one in that place who knows what it feels like to think that you've messed up so badly and there's no way out and there's no hope and you just want to disappear. (laughs) It's Peter who answers that question, the one who knows also what it's like to be the object of the love and grace of Jesus' forgiveness and the love and grace of Jesus' restoration. Peter, the one who had been restored by his friend. (laughs) And I wonder what it felt like for him to be able to tell somebody else about that for the very first time. (laughs) Must have been amazing. Peter... Peter's got some really good news for them. What should you do? You should repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I mean, let me try to make this as clear as I, I can. Peter is saying that the one that they rejected, the one that they handed over, has now done the unthinkable for them. The one that they had rejected and betrayed has stepped in and he has taken their place. He has taken the hit for their unfaithfulness. He has taken the hit in love for their betrayal. And because Jesus has done that, their rescue is at hand, closer than they could have ever dreamed To repent is to turn away from one way of living and enter into another way of living. And that's Peter's invitation. Turn into the life that Jesus is graciously holding out in front of you. Reach a hold and take hold of it with the hand of faith. Take his name in your baptism and the results that will come, they will be interminable. They will be unfathomable, but they will start with this. You'll be forgiven. And he'll never bring it up again. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, this spirit that you have seen at work in us already.
church, that's what it looks like when the first Christians begin to tell other people what it means to be a Christian. It's beautiful. And Peter, you know, Peter can't help himself. He somehow, I don't know, probably the power of the Spirit, he somehow figures out in that moment, you know, this is not just about me, and it's not just about these people in front of me, it's not just about this beautiful, great city that's broken, it's not, it's about the whole world, it's about everything being made new. And so he says, this promise, it's for you, and it's for your children, and it's for everyone who's far off. It's for anyone who God calls to himself. And of course, This is our place in this story. I I don't know where all of you are with faith. I mean, I know you're in church, and that's something for sure. But I know that it's possible that there are some of us here this morning for whom Jesus and what he has done seems a little bit like, you know, wallpaper in our lives. You know, it's there, and we see it every day, but we don't really think a whole lot about it. He's never really been someone you've thought much about for you. And maybe that's because you appropriated Jesus through a friend or a spouse or a parent or a child, someone you care about. But maybe you haven't put much thought into who he is for you, into the meaning of his life for the meaning of your life. And there are probably some of us here this morning who have doubts, real doubts. And there are probably some of us here this morning who have pain in our present or in our past that makes us just want to push everything away. And I'm sure that there are some of us here this morning who felt like those folks listening to Peter or who felt like Peter did sitting on a regret that makes you feel shame, something you've been trying to hide even from yourself and you just cannot do it anymore. You feel like you've messed up so badly and there's no way out and there's no hope and you just want to disappear. Well, if you're in any of those spots or any of the many, many spots in between those spots, I want to make sure that you hear this And hear it clearly. This promise, it's for you. This promise is for you. Your rescue is closer than you ever imagined it could be. Reach out with the hand of faith. Grab hold of that one who has already stepped in and taken your place. Grab hold of the one who in love has been faithful where you have been unfaithful. Grab hold of the one who has taken all of your sin and mine and put it on his back and taken the hit for it so that we don't have to. Be united to him in faith. And listen, that promise is just as sure this morning as the day that Peter spoke it. You will be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Spirit, the presence of Jesus himself working in you powerfully to heal and to restore and to grow you up into the person that you were created to be. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. And I hope nothing, nothing will stand in your way of grabbing hold of Jesus by faith. So, amazingly, Luke tells us that 3,000 of the people who are there listening to Peter, they, they do it. They repent. They're baptized. They take on the name of Jesus. They grab hold of him by faith. It's amazing to think that that morning there were 120 Christians, and then that night there are 3,120 Christians. And really quickly, really quickly, the question moves from what should we do to now what do we do? What I mean is that their common life took a certain shape and that they cultivated habits that were peculiar to their life together. This is where Luke goes next in verse 42. Things have been moving so quick and he stops and he pauses and he says, this is what their life looked like now. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You know, here uh, at Covenant, we talk a lot about how we move towards the things that we love. That's just how humans are. We talk about that a lot because Jesus said it, right? He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Humans are just like that. The things that we treasure, the things that we love, are the things that our whole lives move towards. And then those things begin to shape us into the people that we become. And it is our habits that move us to those things that we love. And so that's what's going on with those first Christians, right? Their first love is this Jesus who has forgiven them and given them new life and given them a vocation in the world. That's their first love. And they figured out really quickly, really early on, that if they cultivated habits that aimed them in that direction, towards their love, they would be more likely to stay faithful and true to that love. They figured it out quick. And they built that stuff into their life so that they could stay faithful and true. So... There were these four things that were the habit of their common life. They gave themselves over to the apostles' teaching. Our, our faith from the very beginning has been a faith that values learning and exploration. Our faith has always been a faith that tries hard to think about what the gospel does to reframe everything else in our lives. You know, our work, our relationships, what we think of justice, what we think of health, the culture around us, our own identities, how we use power, how we use strength. The gospel reframes all of that stuff. And that's not something we just learn once and we're done with it like we read a paper once or we wrote a paper once and we're done. It has to be the habit of our lives. Because if it's not the habit of our lives, we very quickly slip into whatever the prevailing narrative of the world is that's on offer. And I know I don't need to tell you, but I will. Man, the stories of the world that are on offer now are often dehumanizing. And they're filled with rage and disunity and self-righteousness. And they are callous and casual about things that really matter to human beings. 
But like those first Christians, we have been given the true story of the world. This is, this is what we try to get at around here when we say that the growing and learning together uh, is necessary for flourishing in the Christian life. This is what we're trying to get at when we say that we approach life not as experts, but always as learners. That's why someone like me gets up every Sunday and teaches from Scripture. That's why we have all these discipleship cohorts and classes and Christian ed for adults and Fourth Wednesdays. That's why there are dozens and dozens of kids downstairs and next door learning the true story of the world right now. Learning how much Jesus loves them and what he has done for them in the world. We do all that stuff because it's a habit that keeps us trained towards Jesus and our vocation in this world. The first Christians also devoted themselves to what Luke calls the fellowship. At the heart of it, that means that they shared themselves with one another. They didn't primarily see themselves as individuals or even as particular families. They saw themselves as one big family. And that meant they put in time with each other and they gave to each other. Luke says they went to temple together. They generously broke bread in each other's homes. They were together. They had all things in common. He says they sold their possessions so that if someone had a need, they could just cover the need. I mean, their world... (laughs) It was carved up, and human beings were divided up into so many hurtful, destructive strata, right? The wealthy and the poor and the educated and non-educated and slave and free, and it went on and on and on. That world was carved up, and we're kidding ourselves. (laughs) If we don't think the powers that be carve our world up just like that. But here were a people who transcended, gloriously transcended, those boundaries and those divisions. When they live that way, just like when we live this way, we become a beautiful picture of what it means to have God reconciling the whole world to himself in Jesus. And it meant that they didn't have to walk the life of faith alone. They never would have dreamed it. And church, this is the people that we're called to be. When when you see someone around here that you don't know, and you, you work up whatever it needs to be worked up to say hello... To, in, to make space for them to enter into your life, then you are devoting yourself to the fellowship. When you give to the deacon's fund so that someone's financial need can be met, you are devoting yourself to the fellowship. And when you receive that gift, gladly, that money, that ride, that meal when you receive it gladly from your sister or brother, you are devoting yourself to the fellowship. This is how we do it. Those habits of generosity, those habits of self-giving, trained the first Christians to aim their affection at Jesus, whose generosity and self-giving had given them life in the first place. And these are the habits that we need to cultivate too. The first Christians devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread is Luke's way of talking about worship around the Lord's table, this meal that Jesus gave us. 
in which he is known to us again, in which he nourishes us in our faith. The, the first Christians, they just started gathering on the first day of the week in homes to worship and pray, just like we're here on the first day of the week to worship and to pray. Worship together was indispensable to them. They had decided that that time was going to be the time around which all other time in their life bent. And they did it because when they worshiped together, when they prayed together, they not only learned the story of the good news of Jesus, they were also able to begin to courageously and joyfully and tirelessly live out the story of the good news of Jesus when they were away from one another. That's what the habit of worship does for us, too. So, again, I say, make this time be the time around which all other time in our life is bent. Teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayer, these are the habits that the first Christians formed in order to keep their affections trained on Jesus. They figured this out early. Our mothers and fathers in the faith were very wise. They knew that they weren't just going to back into faithfulness. They weren't just going to fall into faithfulness. And so they built their habits, these habits into their life, to keep them aimed towards their first love. So church, let's learn from them. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask, as we often do, that you would help us to, to see and to believe, to know deep in the heart of who we are, that at the base of our identity, we are people who have been rescued. <laughs> we are people who have been made new and forgiven and been given the gift of the Spirit. We are people who, having been rescued, now have a new vocation in this world. Help us to see and to believe and to avail ourselves, to cultivate in our lives as individuals and as a church these habits that keep us trained towards our first love. Definitely, Father, do this for us as individuals and for the good of us as a church. But we pray that you would do this for the good of this broken city and broken world around us who watches closely. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.